0: Good morning. Uh, Good morning, everyone. And thank you so much, Peter, for how you have led us this morning and got us thinking in all kinds of different ways about being adopted into the family of God and the privilege that that is. Uh, And thank you to the guys who've been leading us in worship as well. In preparation for uh, what we're going to look at, I'd like to share two relevant Bible verses and then a familiar warning that often accompanies certain news reports on TV. And the first Bible verse that I I want to share initially appears in Exodus 34, but is then repeated partially or fully a number of times throughout the Old Testament. Does anyone have any idea what verse or vaguely what verse I might be referring to? It appears first in Exodus 34. Some would say it gets repeated in full seven times, and then partially 20 more times in the Old Testament. Does anyone know what it might be? Brilliant. Thanks, Stephen. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And and the key phrase or aspect of God that I want to highlight from that verse is that He is slow to anger. The second verse comes from the New Testament and is related, and this is what it says in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient with you. Patient with everyone. God does not want anyone to be lost, but to come to repentance. And now for the warning. This chapter we are about to read contains content some viewers may find distressing. And it really does. This is going to be hard this morning. So, please, turn to Second Kings chapter 9. Last week, I understand Gordon did an amazing job leading us through chapter 8. And as we get into chapter 9, there's a new king anointed in Israel somewhat undercover by a maniac, as we're about to see. And then three royals are killed, one of them horribly. But the critically important lesson and takeaway from this chapter, it's not the only lesson to take away, but it's a key one. And it's not the first time that we've stressed this, but here is the critically important lesson and takeaway from this morning. God's Word is fulfilled. It always is and it always will be. This is a chapter we have been waiting for. If you've been following this series, this is a chapter we have been waiting for, or at least the outcome of it has been in the cards for years. God had made it abundantly clear back in First Kings 21, a number of chapters ago, a number of weeks ago, a number of months ago actually now, that the house of Ahab which included the lakes of Jezebel that the house of Ahab was on borrowed time that as a result of constantly doing evil in the eyes of the Lord God's anger had been aroused now to go into detail of the kind of things that they got up to that aroused God's anger it would be unhelpful it would be unnecessary this morning but let me just say it was grim like really grim. But God is slow to anger. For 50 years, this dynasty had reigned and reigned miserably. But you see, there comes a point, there comes a time whenever judgment's inevitable and absolutely inescapable. You see, you can play fast and loose with God for as long as you like, but accountability before God is a given one day, some day, actually a set day. And on numerous occasions, Ahab's family were given chances to repent. Time and time again they were given opportunities to sort themselves out, or rather let God sort them out, but they refused, and so they kept dismissing and rejecting the word of God as it came to them via many people, including the likes from the likes of Elijah and Elisha. And God had been patient, God has slowed anger, he had been patient for half a century, because God genuinely does not want anyone to perish. And so he gives time. He has given time. He longs for everyone. If, if we believe God's word, that he does not want anyone to perish, that means he longs for everyone. So there are no exceptions, no exclusions. He longs for everyone to come to repentance. But whenever people determine to do their own thing, go their own way deliberately and continually act in ways that are contrary to and in defiance of God, whenever people or regimes dismiss God and reject grace throughout their lives, then facing his righteous anger, judgment, and perishing at some point is certain. And we're about to see this played out in the lives of three individuals. But before we get particular, we need to stay specific. Because although this story happened thousands of, or however many thousands of years ago, the implications are still relevant to you and I. You see, God so loved the world that he sent Jesus so that whoever believes in him would not perish. So God patiently waits and longs for us to repent and believe. He is slow to anger. God has not changed. But ignore him. Ignore his word. Reject Jesus. Live for self throughout your life or constantly. And you will perish. And his word will be fulfilled. Fulfilled as this story in Second Kings makes disturbingly clear. So let's get into it. Now we will stand as we always do for the public reading of God's word at two points. But can I urge and encourage you to have a copy of God's word in front of you right now as we navigate our way through this. If, if you have it on a device, great. If you can get it on a device, brilliant. Uh, if someone beside you has got a copy, settle up to them but let's go. So, Elisha. Elisha dispatches a prophet. Do you remember that there's this company of prophets? We don't know an awful lot about them, but Elisha dispatches one of them to anoint a man called Jehu as the next king over Israel. Now, Jehu, some of you will know this because you've been following this series. Jehu is currently a commander in the army of Israel. But for some reason, this anointing is to be done in private, well, mainly because there's no actual vacancy in the office of king. Joram, or Joram, however you pronounce that correctly, he is currently king, but Elisha sends a prophet to anoint a new king in secret. And so in a room, in a house, in Ramoth-Gilead, a prophet pours oil over the head of Jehu and declares what the Lord says. So please, let's stand together for the first public reading of God's Word. This is verses 6 to 10. So Jehu got up and went into the house, and then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab your master. And I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last meal in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then the prophet opened the door and ran for his life. I've added that bit. Grab a seat. So time is up. Time is up for Ahab's house and Ahab's dynasty. For every last one of them, especially Jezebel, God has been slow to anger. There have been numerous opportunities to repent, but grace has been rejected all along for too long. And this is now going to happen. They're going to use that same word in John 3.16. The house of Ahab are going to perish The inevitability of judgment, as predicted by God's Word, is about to become reality, as it will do for every one of us someday. For every one of us. It's appointed on that each of us wants to die and then to face judgment. But I want you to note an aspect of this that's worth emphasizing. Middle of verse 7, I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets and the blood of all the servants shed by Jezebel. I want you also to note, as we were reading that through, the number of times I appeared referring to God, because God is driving this. God is pulling the strings. God is dictating events and outcomes, This was not Elisha. This this was not the prophet. Although the prophet was sharing the word of God, this is God saying this, delivering this message. And so God says, I'm going to avenge the blood of my servants because God misses nothing. He sees everything. And although there are times that we think, do you know something? There are times people get away with murder, literally. Or justice never really seems to play out. Or so much of what happens to those who have been faithful to God all their lives is so unfair, isn't it? And yet it's worth remembering and being reminded via this text and via this story that to quote Jesus in Luke 18 as he talks about the reality of the justice of God, to quote Jesus, he says, And will not God bring justice for his chosen ones? I tell you, says Jesus. They will see and get justice. Because the judge of all the earth will do right. There is an eye that sees and a judge who takes note. And any of us who thinks otherwise or reckons that anyone and everyone gets away with it needs to bear this in mind. Vengeance is God's and he will repay. There is no hiding place there certainly wasn't for jezebel and co see as proverbs fifteen three powerfully reveals the eyes of the lord are everywhere and he's keeping watch on the wicked and the gate a few weeks ago we were reminded that god hears everything do you remember that even the words you speak in your bedroom that's what god word that's what god's word says that's not me throwing that in By the way, God hears every word we speak. He also sees everything. And therefore, no one's getting away with anything. And so what is done to God's servants? It's never overlooked. It's never missed. Well, back to the story, because the minute, as I say, the prophet speaks the word of of God, he gets himself out of there as quick as he can. And whenever Jehu emerges from the room in the house, his fellow officers, remember he's the commander in the army, his fellow officers say, "Eh, who was that? Look at verse 11, quote, who was that maniac who came to visit? And whenever Jehu eventually tells them who it was, they roll out the red carpet, they cue the music, and they declare, Jehu is king. Well, Jehu doesn't waste any time in carrying out the prophetic word. Look at verse 14, because it says he conspires now to kill, or he conspires against Urim. Remember, currently king of Israel, or at least he thinks he is. But more importantly, he is a son of Ahab and Jezebel. Side note, it's never a bad idea to act quickly on God's word. Jehu Heard God speak, and then obeyed what he heard. Jehoram is in Jezreel, we read. He's recovering after being wounded in a recent battle. If you were here last week, you'll have heard about that. But Jehoram was wounded in a recent battle with the king of Aram. In Jezreel, there is also the king of Judah, because he has gone down to visit his sick wounded counterpart. So, the king of the northern kingdom, the king of the southern kingdom are together in Jezreel, nursing one set of wounds. So, Jehu conspires against Urim and sets out for Jezreel. Remember, he's in Ramoth, Gilead. So, he sets out for Jezreel. And as he approaches that city, and whenever they get close a lookout on the tower spots them coming and goes and tells Urim, who then dispatches a horseman to intercept them with a question. Are you coming in peace? Well, the horseman goes. He asks the question. And then, incredibly, he changes sides. He falls in behind Jehu. Well, the lookout is watching this and reports it to the king. And the king says, Dispatch another horseman. So he dispatches another horseman, and exactly the same thing happens again. And so the lookout breaks that news to Joram and says, Listen, the guy that's coming towards us is driving like Jehu, because he is a commander in Europe. He's driving like Jehu, who, look at verse 20, who drives like a maniac. So, crazy prophet, verse 11, crazy driver, verse 20, crazy story, okay? All of that. Well, Joram can't take it anymore. He can't send out another horseman. And so he decides to ride out himself along with Ahaziah, the king of Judah, who had come to visit and probably wishes he hadn't. And whenever these two kings and their entourage reach Jehu, the maniac driver, they ask him exactly the same question, have you come in peace? Jehu's response causes Yoram to turn round and run. Here's the response. How can there be peace, Jehu replied. As long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel about. You see, whenever God and his ways are jettisoned by people in communities, whenever choices are made to worship other gods and pursue godless activities and practices, peace is never going to be the experience in reality. There's only going to be tension and division. There's only going to be friction and conflict, not just between individuals and groups of individuals and between communities, but ultimately and especially between human beings and their creator God, who's the true source of peace. How can there be peace when everyone is just worshiping other gods and doing their own thing? The house of Ahab have done evil in the eyes of the Lord for years. There'd been no let up. And so peace, in whatever shape or form we, we imagine it, it, is never going to be seen here. Jehu is called out. He is named. Or sorry, Jehu called it out. He names Urim's sins and disobedience. He exposes them. And so Urim tries to run, but the problem is, escaping the judgment of God is impossible. And so look at this with me. Jehu takes an arrow and fires it, and it hits joram between the shoulder blades, it says, and it pierces his heart, and Joram or Urim, dies. But look at what happens next, because in terms of the fulfillment of God's word and inevitable judgment, we are left in no doubt who's controlling this And who is accomplishing his purposes. However uncomfortable. And this will make us this morning feel incredibly uncomfortable. But we are left in no doubt who is controlling things. Who is accomplishing their purposes. Because Jehu turns to the chariot officer. And he reminds him of something that had happened a number of years later. Because it seems that one day whenever Jehu and his chariot officer were out in a chariot behind Ahab who had just killed or been complicit in the killing of Naboth. You remember the guy with the vineyard? Well, way back then, Jehu remembers that God had declared that someday Ahab and his house are going to pay for what they did to Naboth and his vineyard on this very plot of ground. Well, that time has come. And so, there's a certain irony to Joram's judgment because the chariot officer is ordered to pick up Joram's body. that's lying dead in the chariot in front of them. Pick up Joram's body and dump it overboard on this plot of ground. In Jezreel. Why? In accordance with the word of the Lord. See, God's word is powerful, it's certain, you can depend on it, it will never return to Him void or empty. It accomplishes what God desires and intends every single time without fail because God's word is fulfilled. And I know there is a danger of being overly and annoyingly repetitive during this series, but one of the major lessons to take from First and Second Kings is that the presence, power, precision, and priority of God's Word lies at the heart of this story. God's Word is central, proving to be true, proving to be right at every turn and in every single life. And whatever else we take away from these months and these two books, whatever else we take away this morning, I pray that God's powerful and precise Word would be taken as a constant presence and priority in our lives. That we are a church and a people who read God's Word regularly, who consume it consistently, who absorb it thoroughly, and who live it and obey it accordingly. And so when you go back to the story, whenever the king of Judah, Ahaziah, whenever he sees what has happened to Urim, he also tries to run. And he gets mortally wounded. He doesn't get killed. He gets mortally wounded. And so he's able to escape, but he dies a number of days later from his injuries. And so we have two royal deaths, but there's one to come. And so at this point, let's stand for part two of the public reading of God's word and the record of the demise of Jezebel. Verse 30, then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, "'Have you come in peace, you Zimri, "'you murderer of your master?' "'Jehu looked up at the window and called out, "'Who is on my side, who?' Two or three eunuchs or palace functionaries "'looked down at him. "'Throw her down,' Jehu said. "'So they threw her down, "'and some of her blood splattered the wall.' And splattered the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in for lunch. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. And they went back and they told Jehu, who said, This is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah, the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like dung on the ground in the plot at Jezreel, so that no one will even recognize that it is a woman. Grab a seat. Aren't you really glad you came to church today? Do you know, if if Urim's end highlights the irony of God's judgment, Jezebel's displays the sheer horror of it. Although I want to say, and you may want to pick me up on this, I want to say that divine judgment, whatever way you look at it, whatever you make of it, whatever you think about the prospect of it, divine judgment tends to send a chill down my spine. Because it is appointed onto all of us once to die and then to face it. And if if you kinda of read that and are left feeling numb or neutral, then please listen carefully to Jezebel's Jezebel's demise, because judgment can be truly dreadful. Give her her dues. She senses it's coming. Jezebel knew the score. She appears to know what's about to happen, and so, and this seems a bit bizarre, she, she slaps on the Revlon. I love it. Like, it's just bizarre. And she gets sarky. That comment that she made, have you come in peace, you zimri, you murderer of my mast, you murderer of mast, you murderer of kings. Just, it was just a sarcastic comment. So she, after shouting down, after dolling herself up and shouting down this derogatory comment to Jehu, he shouts back up, who is on my side? And then there's these couple of eunuchs, they peer out, and on Jehu's command, they lift And they kind of just throw Jezebel out of the window. And and it it would appear she literally bounces off the walls, causing her blood to splatter everywhere. Remember that warning. And then her her body is trampled to death. Now, some people think it was by Jehu's horse or just by the horses that were gathered at the bottom of this wall. And so the queen is dead. The wicked queen is dead. But it kind of gets worse and it gets even more distressing because, as I say, Jehu then, he just goes in for something to eat. And then he realizes, conscience seems to kick in at some level and he realizes, oh, right, look, I I am royalty now and Jezebel is actually part of royalty and a member of royalty and therefore she deserves to be buried. only to discover that there's no body to bury because dogs have eaten all of it apart from the skull and the hands and, and the feet. And how does he respond when he's told that? By declaring that this is a fulfillment of the word of God, which takes us back to First Kings 21 and these chilling words of Elijah and regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat our body." The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs. So this, this is no great surprise. It's gross. It's shocking. For some of us, and I know this is true, it's downright offensive. But one thing's for sure. It's not unexpected. God predicted this. God declared it. Therefore, it happened because God's word is always fulfilled. And so God is slow to anger, but whenever you pursue idolatry or witchcraft or whatever it is, whenever you surround yourself and others with those kind of things, as Jezebel did, and that's only the tip of the iceberg— in terms of her godless behavior and lifestyle choices. But whenever you choose to rebel against and reject God for all of life and in every area of life, if you choose to break every command and do your own thing, there will come a time when this aspect of God's anger or God's character will play out And I don't find that easy to say. I know it's not popular to say it. Not even within Christendom. But we must also remember that God is patient. And I know this is really hard to square this. But God is patient with us. God does not want Anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So this is never God's desire. So don't blame God. For what he has made is inevitable if you choose to do your own thing. Ultimately, one day, justice will be done, judgment will be served, and those who are found wanting will perish. And no matter how much I doll that up, and no matter how much I try to doll myself up, the judge of all the earth is going to do right. And so God has done everything he can to ensure that we avoid the grim prospect of perishing. And so, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. While I was still a sinner, Christ died. I didn't have to do anything, sort myself up, clean myself up, I didn't have to do anything. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And God, in His grace and in His mercy, has reached out, and He has made it possible for me to repent and to find forgiveness and reconciliation. But if I never accept that, if I never acknowledge that, if I never believe in God's only son that he sent out of love, if I never reach that place, then the predictable will inevitably happen. The reality of what God has said will occur because his word is true. And a godless eternity, whatever that looks like, Will be my lot, and so three royals end up on the wrong side of God's divine judgment. And if we want to take something else alongside the fact that God's word is, if we want to take something else away with us from this sobering chapter, even if the scenes have been distressing, here's what I want us to take: sin and judgment are real. But thank God, right now, today, grace reaches out to those who take God's word to heart and repent. God is slow to anger. There is still time. May we never waste it.